Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 through chapter 6, verse 12. I think I've got in your bulletin that it's verse 13, but it's not. It's verse 12. It's 12. Yeah. Did I say 12? That's good. Um, all right. Let's go together to this passage. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection from the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened to have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt for land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produced a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak this way, yet, In your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who are, who through faith and patience inherit the promises. May God add His blessing to the reading and the hearing of His Word. Now, um, as we approach this passage, as difficult as this passage is, I want to remind you of a couple things. One, Um, Jesus is better. We saw that at the beginning of this book. We've seen it all the way through. He's the better priest. He's the better sacrifice. He's the better messenger. He's the better gospel message. He is better. So He's the supreme value that we have in life. He is the worth 
that we have. He is the hope and life and peace, and He is everything for us. Second, I want to remind you that there's a call in this book over and over to stay focused on Him. That if He is truly greater than all of our affection and attention and all of our efforts towards life should be focused on Him. And then finally, I want to remind you that there are warnings given in this book that are not to be explained away. That are genuine warnings. And they're not supposed to be theologized away or thought away. They are to be engaged and sought after for understanding. So, as we approach this morning, I wanted to remind you of that as we go in. And and let's just see the divisions in this text before we begin. There's three divisions, pretty clearly. And they're done for you in English in paragraph form. So you can see them pretty easily. You see verse 11 through verse 14 there in chapter 5. That's one division. And where he talks about our condition or the condition of the Hebrew readers, the readers who are reading this. He's talking about the condition of people. Then you have the next portion, which is the exhortation there, verses 1 through 8 of chapter 6. Pretty easy, easily divided there, 1 through 8. And right in the middle of that, you've got this hint, if the Lord permits, if God permits. You've got this hint as to what hope is. Just a hint. He doesn't go all the way. He just gives you a hint, a little taste of what it is. And then you've got the hope there in verses 9 through 12. Um, God in verses 9 through 12. So that's going to be our divisions. That's how we're going to look at this. You've got one column, two column, three column, and you can see them pretty easily. So let's dive right in. And I want to start in our dive in by telling you a story. I started in ministry with a guy that was solid. Who uh, He and I went to seminary together and he was solid as a rock. He knew the Bible inside and out, back and forth. He had seen miracles happen. He had been on the mission field and he had he had come back and he came from a Christian family, an upright family. And we both started at Gordon-Conwell, same time. Nice guy, incredibly nice guy. He took a pastorate at a small church in Charlotte, North Carolina, and he was doing very, very well. One day, out of the blue, he decided none of this matters. He decided that Christianity couldn't possibly be true. Out of the blue, just out of the blue. Now, he and I aren't close, I just so I don't know what was going on in his head, but I can tell you from a distance, it looked like it was sudden and a quick flip. Now, I'm sure if I had gotten to know him, there would have been signs. There would have been things that were in his life and in his heart and his attitude that probably would have popped up. But he turned away from the faith and ended up going off living a lifestyle that's counter to Christianity. Not just different, but counter to Christianity. With no hope and no joy. And he went that direction. 
I tell you that because that seems to be happening a lot in our world. If you're paying attention to modern trends, you're seeing a lot of famous Christians suddenly turn their back on the Lord. And we're wondering why. What it is about these guys that seem to have so much that makes them go out from us. Makes them leave us. And we have explanations of this in Scripture. By the way, this is not new. This is not a new thing. The Bible is certainly not caught off guard by this. In fact, there's multiple times in Scripture where the Apostle John says in his letter, uh, they went out from us that it would be proved that they were not of us. Paul says there are those who gave up the pursuit of Christ for the cares of this world. This is not an uncommon thing, but it is certainly a tragic thing. And it's certainly a depressing thing. So, as we approach this text that talks about people who seem to have had it all, who have seemed to have understand, understood, I want you to recognize that the book of Hebrews is not dancing around this issue. So we can't either. We must look at this and see the world around us and go, yeah, that's how this is. This is that way. There are people who say they believe, look like they believe, act like they believe, and don't believe. And it becomes manifest in their lack of perseverance. In their lack of perseverance. So, let's dive right in here. Verse 11. About this, about... Christ being perfect, we have much to tell you about Christ being the high priest. That's what we studied last week. About this, we have much to say. And it's hard to explain. And then he's going to say the condition of us. Now, I, I want to say the condition of us because we are corporately Americans, and this pretty well sums up America. We are corporately in America meaning you identify in some way as an American citizen, meaning that there's some cultural connection to America, meaning this partly describes you and me. So let's go. About this we have much to say. It is hard to explain since you have become dull or sluggish of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. So let's pause there. And we've got this condition here first, that this person is sluggish or dull of hearing. Is that not our culture? You know, years ago, when America was first being colonized, the Puritans came over and they were in the Northeast and they were... Uh, starting their communities, good or bad, they got all kinds of issues, not saying that they were perfect. But they had this phrase that they got into an argument over, is it sublapsarian or superlapsarian? Right. Is it sublapsarian or superlapsarian? Meaning, in the fall, uh, did, it happen, did God's plan happen before fall or after fall? This was a big deal in their congregations, and it was a common topic of discussion. 
Sublapsarian or superlapsarian was a common phrase for farmers who couldn't read. This was normal topic of discussion for them. If you walk into any church today, barring a few, and you say to the pastor, I'm curious, are you sublapsarian or superlapsarian? He's going to have to go look it up. But this was common discussion at one point. But our culture isn't there anymore. Our culture is not there anymore. Now, if you bring up a theological point of view in most churches, they don't know what theological point of view means. If you go to the pastor and you say, I've got a point of theology to discuss with you, he's going to expect two things. One, he's going to expect you to bring up predestination, because that's the only big word that people seem to know and not understand. Or, He's going to expect you to bring up some minute point about the gospel plane. Did Jesus really do, did this really, did God really? Those are the the deep points of theology. And yet, there's so much more. You ever wonder why Paul starts his letters by addressing them to the elect? Or the predestined, that's of the word, election. Um, Paul starts almost all his letters that way because he assumes that you get it. He assumes that that's understood. That's basic. He explains it in thoroughly in one place. Everywhere else, it's basically assumed. The Scripture is loaded with deep and profound truths that affect our lives. And yet, we have become, as a nation, dull of hearing, sluggish of hearing. And that doesn't mean that you can't hear. It means that you are willfully slow to do it. That's why I use the word sluggish there. That's what that word translates to. Dull, sluggish. It means that you're willfully slow to do it. To engage these difficult topics. Oh, that we would be a church when somebody comes up to us and goes, you know, do you think that God's plan was before the fall or after the fall, that we would leap on that with joyous discussion. When somebody says, you know, where do you derive your, you know, like somebody asks a question about, well, what's the value of worship? And you have opened the floodgates of discussion for Christ's life in you and how much it has changed things. Oh, that we would be that kind of people, that we would not be sluggish, but that we would be actively pursuing a knowledge of Christ. That Paul's prayer for the Ephesians would be the same one that lands on us, that we would be uh, enlightened by the knowledge of God, that we would be constantly feeding on His Word, that it would be overflowing from our hearts, that this is who we would be that we would not be sluggish. But the the culture that we are in is sluggish of hearing. We are a people who excuse our our laziness. We are people who excuse our lack of pursuit for various reasons. Not picking on anybody. There's a million reasons, and I have some too. But we excuse our laziness 
and we are sluggish of hearing. So from the outset, I want to say this, that avoidance of sin is not the same thing as a pursuit of holiness. Avoidance of sin is not the same thing as a pursuit of holiness. And I say that, that's going to make sense in a couple minutes, because we're, what he's driving at here is belief that changes the actions. Belief that changes the action brings forth righteous behavior. So they are sluggish of hearing. Then second, they missed basic truth. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. So he says here, you need somebody again to teach you the basic things of God. In other words, you need someone again to go, listen, Jesus Christ is real. He died on the cross. He rose again. He ascended into heaven and he's coming back. You need to hear that again. You need to hear that again. You need somebody to teach you the basic words of God again. Now, put yourself in the life of a Hebrew person. A person who has been raised with the oracles of God. He's using that phrase for a reason. The oracles of God. Because that's a reference to an Old Testament understanding of redemption. Just put that back here. These are people with deep-seated tradition. They're people who understand the Old Testament well. And they know what the Old Testament says. They have tasted the words of God. They understand those things. And the author of Hebrews goes, you don't even get those. I have to reteach you that stuff. Stuff you were raised with. Then he goes on and he says, you need milk, not solid food for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. So, the condition of the person is that they're sluggish of hearing, they can't, they're, they're lazy, they're not hearing, they're not pursuing God, they're not pursuing knowledge of God. Second, they need basic understanding yet again. They need someone to teach them yet again the basic truths that God is real, that He has a plan, that He is actively involved, that He has worked out redemption, and that it is available. Basic truth. They need that taught to them again, because evidently it didn't sink in the first time. And then, they need to move on from milk. They ha- but they have to drink the milk first, because they're children. Children. And how do you determine, when you look at a grown man or grown woman, how do you determine that that person is still a child? They drink milk. They drink milk. Yeah. No. Uh, you determine if that person is still a child by the way they behave. By the way they behave. Children act a certain way. Men and women who are grown-ups, you'll see them act like children. What that's telling you is that they're still children. In the faith, you have men and women who are still behaving like children. And the author of Hebrews is saying, it's not a good thing that you are still behaving like a child. You haven't moved on to righteousness. You're still just avoiding sin. You're not attacking and becoming holier. You're not pursuing holiness. They are different. Avoiding sin and becoming holy are two different things. They're both necessary. You need to avoid sin, but that's a basic reality of Christianity. You become a Christian, you, you 
stay away from sin. It's that simple. But what we often miss is that you're supposed to be pursuing something. Pursuing holiness. So there's the condition. And here he, he sums up this condition here by saying, But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. I want that to be my description. Someone who has the powers of discernment trained by constant practice distinguishing good from evil. Someone who has been pursuing righteousness so long that he has become an old saint. That's what I want. Listen, you don't become an old saint overnight. You don't become an old saint overnight. You become an old saint by being there a long time. By pursuing godliness a long time. You also don't become an old saint just by becoming old. That's not how it works. You can't sit and become an old saint. You have to work at it. And oh, that this would be the descriptor of who we are, right? That, that this would be who I am. That I am one who has, who has had my powers of discernment trained. The Holy Spirit has trained me and moved in me and trained me to see good from evil by constantly practicing it. By exercising my righteousness constantly. By denying myself. Just by way of side application, if you want to train yourself, if you, there are things you can do to train yourself in righteousness. And they are easy things. Fasting is a good one. Setting aside designated time for Bible study and prayer. Those are good ones. Keeping a prayer journal is a good one. Keeping tabs through accountability partners is a good one. These are ways that you can exercise a pursuit of righteousness. Rather than just avoiding sin, you can exercise pursuit of righteousness by doing these things, by occasionally fasting, by occasionally um, setting aside our blocks of prayer, by studying your Bible in a regular amount of time by holding each other accountable. These are exercises. When I was young and was playing basketball, when I was younger, I'm still young, when I was younger and was playing basketball and I was going to play on Baylor's team and, and those things, I would do 500 layups left-handed, 500 layups right-handed, 600 free throws, 100 three-pointers there, 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 100 three-pointers there. Then I'd do 100... 45 angles on each side, then I'd run the court back and forth making layups until I dropped. That was so I could play in a game. No one saw that. No one, no one watched me do that and said, that guy's great at basketball. No one did that. That was training so that when I got in a game, I could do well. Listen, your Christian life has opportunities for you to train. For you to exercise. And at first, when you first start shooting 500 layups with one hand, 500 layups with another hand, 1,000 free throws, when you first start doing this, it's exhausting. And you don't start with 500. You start with 10. 
on each side. Because that's what I started with when I was in elementary school. Ten on each hand. And then ten free throws. Ten jump shots. And ten jump shots. Ten jump shots. Run the court. You start small, but you train. And you train. And you train. Until you get to the point where you're doing a massive amount of training. And it has become easy to play the game. So this is how Christianity works in miniature as well. We work hard, we train, we exercise to practice holiness. And then we live life, and in living life, we're doing the game. And the more you train, the easier that stuff is. And i got to tell you, the more fun it is. The more you train, the more delightful life is. The more fun it is to do life. The less sluggish you feel like being. The more you train, the better it goes for you. And so this author of Hebrews is calling us, move on. Verse Chapter 6, verse 1. So now you've got the exhortation. Let us therefore leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and move on to maturity. He says, move forward. Let's go on. If you've got Jesus down, you, you know He died on the cross for your sins. He rose again. He ascended into heaven and He's coming back. 1 Corinthians 15, the basics of the Gospel. He's, if you know that, you've got that down. It's in your head. Move on. That should affect everything else in your life. You should begin to train yourself to pursue righteousness. To live a holy life. A life that the whole world looks at and goes, what is so different about them? That's, that's how we ought to be. That's, that's who we ought to be. So he says, let us move on. Let us go on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and, and instructions about washing and the laying on of hands and the resurrection of dead and eternal judgment. Now, he lists off these, uh, <coughs> he lists off these six things. Repentance, faith towards God, washing, laying on of hands, resurrection, and judgment. John MacArthur points out in his commentary on Hebrews this, that these six things are basic doctrines of Judaism. These basic doctrines of Judaism. Repentance from sin is a basic doctrine of Judaism. It was not surprising when John the Baptist showed up in the wilderness and said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Nobody was shocked by that. What they were shocked by is he said, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's now. And then he said, And I'm not the guy. That's what they were shocked by. The Pharisees came to him and said, Are you the Messiah? Because they were expecting a, Yep, sure am, because that's what everybody else did. They come to him and they go, are you the Messiah? And John the Baptist goes, no, 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 no. I'm dunking you in water. He's going to do it with fire. Totally different. John the Baptist's response of, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent is a normal response for a Jew. He's supposed to. He's supposed to repent. That's what the laws are about. You take your sacrifice and offering, you're supposed to be giving a repentance. So when the Pharisees come to John the Baptist and they ask him, Who are you? Are you the Messiah? 
Yes, they're mad at him, but they're mad at everybody who claims to be Messiah. And he says, no, I'm not the Messiah, and they're taken back. They're, whoa, that wasn't the answer. We need to confer again. And John the Baptist looks at him and goes, you whitewashed tombs? Who told you to flee from the wrath to come? Almost like, I didn't want you here. Not talking to the holier-than-thou Pharisees. John the Baptist stands and proclaims repent because that's a normal thing. Baptism was done by the Essenes in the wilderness as a ritual practice. They did it pretty frequently. They dunked themselves in water pretty frequently. Washing your hands and feet when you went into somebody's house was a ritual practice that was symbolizing the holiness of the household. The wedding at Cana, those six stone jars that are there, they're there for cleansing. In John chapter 3, when Jesus comes in and he has he turns those jars into wine, those those big pitchers of water into wine. He takes dirty, or, well, he takes foot washing water and turns it into wine. He takes ritual cleansing water that you were supposed to wash your hands and then take a scoop out and wash your feet with and then go into the party. And then when you came back out, you had to do the same thing again because you were entering into a holy ceremony. Ritual washings. Faith towards God was a common phrase in Hebrew. The laying on of hands was done by the priests when they laid their hands on the sacrifices to expel their own sin into the sacrifice. As a symbolic referent of God taking their sin and putting it on to the sacrifice. The resurrection from the dead was a common theological argument between the Herodians and the Sadducees. They were arguing constantly about the resurrection from the dead, and it was a common understanding that there would be a resurrection. Judgment, of course, is talked about all through the Old Testament. The Hebrews understood these basic foundational things. They are basic doctrines of the faith. But when you come to Christ, note the language he's using here. When you come to Christ, there's a difference. Repentance from dead works now becomes new life in Christ, pursuing holiness. Repentance from dead works and avoiding sin now becomes pursuit of holiness and following this new life in Christ. Faith towards God becomes faith in Christ. Faith towards God becomes faith in Christ. The washing of the body becomes a cleansed soul by the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ manifesting life inside you. The laying on of hands becomes what we saw last time, the grabbing hold of Jesus. The grabbing hold of Jesus that we saw last time. The taking hold of faith. The resurrection from the dead becomes a full and glorious resurrected life now and future. And the judgment of God becomes exchange for the rewards of faith in Christ. So we see, we move on from these foundational things, and they are foundational. They're foundational to understanding the gospel. They're foundational. Understanding that you were a sinner who was in need of Jesus Christ is foundational. But once you have understood that, 
It is now time to run the race with endurance that has been set before you, that you would pursue holiness, and that you would train to know Christ, that you would become a warrior in the kingdom. So he's going to describe now some things that make us uneasy. And before he does here in verse 3, he says this phrase, And this we will do if God permits. So notice there, this we will do. This we will do. Let's put the emphasis there first. This we will do. You are expected to pursue holiness. That it's something you do. In Scripture, you are called to do it, to press forward into it, to press hard into it, to know Christ, to pursue Him. We will do this. And then let's add that last line. If God permits, our doing it is entirely dependent on God. Yes, we do it. Yes, we work at it. Yes, we labor but it's dependent on God who wills and to work in us to His good pleasure. So we are utterly dependent on God for what we are going to do. This we will do if God permits. So we are pursuing life because God has birthed it in our souls. So He says here in verse 4, this phrase about those who have held on to these elementary doctrines, these foundational doctrines, and have not moved past them. This is what he says. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gifts, and who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. So he says here, it's impossible to restore someone if they have looked at the phrases, if they have been enlightened, once been enlightened, if they have tasted the heavenly gift, if they have shared in the Holy Spirit, if they've tasted goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it's impossible to restore that person again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. So what do we do when we look at people who seem to have completely rejected the faith? Well, there's some phrases here. One, um, I want to say before we dive into these phrases that these phrases aren't used elsewhere in Scripture to describe salvation. They're not used elsewhere in Scripture to describe salvation. Indeed, they're used to describe other things. There's a couple of them that throw us off. One is once been enlightened. The phrase here, enlightened, tips us off that this is a person who has had some light come upon them. That's all it means. That they have had some light come upon them and they have, they have been, they have seen a little bit of the light. The next phrase there, they've been enlightened, they've tasted the heavenly gifts. Note, 
It does not say that they feasted or ate, but it uses an intentional word, tasted. They tasted it. They tasted it. They have examined, they kind of looked at it, eh, and they walked away from it. Second, they have shared in the Holy Spirit. This word share here is the word partaker. It's only used twice uh, in two places in Scripture, in Luke and in Hebrews. And it's used here to describe association with something, but not possession. So these people do not possess the Spirit. They do not possess the Holy Spirit. They don't own Him. They don't really get Him, but they associate themselves with Him. They're associated with the Holy Spirit. They are people who are associated with the Holy Spirit. This is to be contrasted to the indwelling Holy Spirit that Christians have. When a Christian is described, the Holy Spirit lives inside him or her. It's not somebody who's just associated or just kind of touches base, but a Christian is one who has the Holy Spirit living inside him. And then verse 5, they have tasted. Again, there's that phrase, tasted. They've tasted the word, not eaten or feasted, not eaten or feasted of it, but tasted the word. And this person who has done these things, who has tasted the word, who has, who has uh, tasted the goodness of God, who has uh, tasted the powers of the age to come, and then has fallen away, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. This person here in Hebrews, the author tells us, cannot be restored. This is tragic. And it's one of these warnings in Hebrews that we could easily theologize away. Let's not do that. Let's let it land on us. That we would get on our knees and pray that those we have seen turn their backs on God are not this. That we would be praying that those who have rejected the call of Christ would not be this. That there would still be hope for redemption for them and that they would repent and return to Jesus and that they would believe that perhaps the Holy Spirit is just working in them and calling them to Himself. Let us let this warning drive us to that. And let it drive us to eat and feast deeply on the Word of God, that we would practice holiness and not just be going on, but that we would move on to full maturity. 4, verse 7, for land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. When the rain comes and crop is produced and fruit comes out, blessing from God. That's what we want. We want the rain to fall on us and to go fruit. There's a fig tree that Jesus encounters when He's going into Jerusalem and He's hungry and he wants a snack. I'm not exaggerating. That's what it is. And he's walking in, and he, there's this 
fig tree outside on the hill, and he gives us this incredibly beautiful object lesson. He's about to walk into Jerusalem where all the Jewish religious systems have rejected him as Messiah. And he sees this tree, and it's a big fig tree, and it has no fruit. And Jesus curses the tree, worthless tree, because it has no fruit, and he wanted to take of the fruit. And he goes into the city, and when he comes out, the disciples see the same tree, dead, withered and dead. Because the tree has drunk of the rain and has not produced any fruit. And it's an image of what has happened in Jerusalem. They have drunk of the rain and the blessings of God. They have green leaves. They look beautiful. They're huge. And there's absolutely no value to them. Despite the glory of God sending them rain over and over and over. It's the same warning then lands on us. That we would not be this way. That we would pursue holiness and bear fruit for the kingdom. Verse 8, But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. And its end is to be burned. So there's the exhortation. You've got people who bear fruit and people who don't. And those who don't will be cut down and burned. In the end, that's John chapter 15, they will be cut down and burned and thrown into the fire. And those who bear fruit, they bear fruit for the kingdom, legitimate, saved believers. Oh, that we would pray that all who come through our midst, who come in contact with us, who taste of the word of God, would bear fruit and grow. Verse 9 through 12 now, gives us the hope. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. Thank you. Thank you. I am so grateful for the author of Hebrews throwing me this paragraph. Otherwise, I would be so tense. But look at what he says. Though we speak this way, the, the author is going, listen, I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. I know that some of you are probably doubting your own faith right now. I, I get it. He says, though we speak this way, beloved, we feel sure of better things in your case. Things that belong to salvation. For God, remember, our hope is if God permits. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work. We will do it if God permits to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints. We will do it if God permits, as you still do, because God permits it. You are moving forward, pursuing righteousness. And... We desire that each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. 
so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patient endurance and patience inherit the promise. The author of Hebrews ends with the same reverse of the cultural description. You've become sluggish of hearing back there at the beginning. And then here in verse 12, that you may not be sluggish, same word, that you may not be sluggish, but that you would imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So be imitators of God, beloved. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Pursue Christ. Avoiding sin is not the same as pursuing holiness. Buddhists avoid sin. Hindus avoid sin. Muslims avoid sin often better than we do. Jews avoid sin. Christians pursue holiness. What marks us as different is a pursuit of the holiness of God in our every act. Let's pray and we'll enter into a time of communion.